This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Tonight, a New South Wales mother returned from a camp in Syria last year is charged over her travel to the region. Also, an explosive leak from Prince Harry's upcoming book detailing how his brother William knocked him to the floor during a fight about Meghan Markle. I'm surprised on two counts. Firstly, that there was a leak from the book. Then, of course, the actual content is is very explosive. I mean, we knew that there were issues behind palace doors, but we didn't know that it had got to this level. And flooding worsens across WA's Kimberley region with the town of Fitzroy Crossing badly affected. This town's flooded by water. The IGAs have got water inside. They've run out of meat and run out of bread. The feeling yesterday up at that public meeting it was one of great anxiety and a bit of anger. You know, when they ask questions like, you know, when can I go back? You know, where am I going to get the food from? What am I going to do about my payments? Thanks for your company. One of the women who was recently brought back to Australia from a Syrian detention camp has now been charged for going to Syria in the first place. Police allege the 31-year-old mother willingly travelled to an area controlled by the so-called Islamic State group in 2014 to join her husband and was aware of his activities with the terrorist group. Security experts say the laws used to prosecute in this case are only used in the most exceptional circumstances and that repatriating families of IS fighters remains the right thing to do. Gavin Coote reports. For several years, four Australian women who'd married so-called Islamic State fighters had been held in a Syrian detention camp. They had 13 children with them. In October last year, the Albanese government repatriated them to Australia following ongoing calls from human rights groups. Now one of the women, 31-year-old Mariam Rad, has been charged with entering or remaining in an area controlled by ISIS. Roger Shanahan is non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute and says these laws apply to only very specific areas. There were two areas prescribed. One was in Mosul in Iraq and the other was in Raqqa in Syria. And if you entered or remained in those areas without a particular reason that's set uh, out in the uh, criminal code, then you were liable for prosecution. So it'd be interesting to see how the courts approach the issue and if they're if the person is found guilty, what kind of sentence is handed out because we're very early in the process of people being charged with these types of offences. New South Wales and Australian Federal Police arrested the woman in the regional town of Young earlier today and alleged that she was aware of her husband's activities with Islamic State and willingly travelled to the conflict region. Police say her husband is believed to have died in Syria in 2018. Levi West is the Director of Terrorism Studies at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. He says the offence, which carries a potential 10-year prison term, was created in 2014 and 2015, aimed at preventing people from travelling to an ISIS stronghold unless they had a legitimate reason. But the idea was that it's a, a relatively straightforward way of obtaining an offence against someone and it's passed in the context of um, the difficulties that come from obtaining evidence to sufficient evidentiary standards and maintaining chains of custody on that evidence from a war zone. The repatriation of the group from Syria sparked criticism, including from the federal opposition. Some community leaders in Western Sydney raised concern about a lack of consultation about them being resettled there. 
Levi West is adamant their repatriation was the right decision. And there's been a general trend in the last sort of six to 12 months of governments right across the Western world engaging much more forthrightly with repatriating people out of camps in Syria. Um, and so we're not alone in doing this. But I think it is primarily informed by the idea that the risk that um, foreign terrorist fighters, and they can be male or female, um, and their families present is not only to the Australian mainland, but is actually to the international community writ large. And that by bringing them home, it is very much about us fulfilling both our formal obligations to them as citizens, our obligations to the international community, and it also enables us to have a better picture of what's going on with those individuals if they are within domestic jurisdiction of Australia. Save the Children, which led the push for the women and children to be brought back from Syria, says if there is any evidence that any of the women have committed crimes, the appropriate place for them to be prosecuted is in Australia. Police say the investigations will continue and that there is no current or impending threat to the Australian community as part of this activity. Gavin Coote reporting. Just weeks after an explosive documentary aired about the royal family, Prince Harry has made another startling accusation that his brother physically attacked him. The details are outlined in Prince Harry's biography, Spare, due to be released next week, with key elements published by The Guardian newspaper today. It claims Prince Harry and Prince William fought about Meghan, resulting in a physical confrontation that left Prince Harry injured. Catherine Gregory reports. So far, Prince Harry's been pretty successful at a building anticipation for his upcoming biography, Spare, even giving promotional interviews to major networks like ITV in the UK. It never needed to be this way. The leaking and the planting. And already the previews are going viral. I want a family, not an institution. They've shown absolutely no willingness to reconcile. But it's today's bombshell spill from the book, detailed in The Guardian, that could really help copies fly off shelves. The news organisation says it's obtained a copy of the book. In it, Prince Harry describes a physical confrontation with William during a fight about Meghan Markle in 2019. According to The Guardian, Prince Harry says William grabbed me by the collar, ripping my necklace and knocked me to the floor. Harry describes falling onto the dog's bowl, which cracked under my back, the pieces cutting into me. I lay there for a moment, dazed, then got to my feet and told him to get out. This is um, a brotherly battle, the like of which we, we had no idea was going on. Juliet Reardon is the editor-at-large for the Australian Women's Weekly and royal commentator for the ABC. I mean, we knew that there, there were issues behind palace doors, but we didn't know that it had got to this level. As you said, it's a brotherly battle. I mean, some might look at that and go, well, this is what brothers do. They have physical fights. Um, Do you think it's as simple as that or do you think there's more to it? I think it is as simple as that. It's seemingly about William complaining about Meghan's behaviour and Harry, you know, quite rightly defending his wife. According to The Guardian's interpretation of the book, William came to Harry's home to talk about their relationship and problems with the press, then complained about Meghan calling her rude and abrasive, to which Harry accused William of repeating the press narrative and acting like an heir. It resulted in the physical fight. We don't normally hear this sort of very private stuff um, aired in public about the royal family, or it is going to uh, leave people in 
similar minds about, you know, should Harry be airing such dirty laundry in public? But if you went in thinking the royal family were against Meghan, you'll come out thinking that also. Juliet Reardon says regardless, the Guardian article will help boost the sales of the book. But given she's still yet to read the biography, she's not yet sure how these revelations out of context will impact on the reputation of the royal family. I think, you know, the fact that Harry put in there that that William, you know, seemed a little bit crestfallen afterwards and said, you know, don't tell Meg. And I, I actually don't feel that it shows William in, in a particularly terrible light, but it shows another aspect of his personality that we don't often see. The book is the latest expose by Prince Harry about his fractious relationship with his brother and father. He detailed another tense confrontation in the recent Netflix documentary. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. Dr Cindy McCreary is an Associate Professor of History at Sydney University and specialises in cultural history, the monarchy and colonialism. She thinks Prince Harry's book will be a huge blow to the royal family. I think that this is a very dangerous moment for the British monarchy because what Harry is doing is not only kind of revealing family secrets and in particular painting his brother in particular, but also I think his father in a, in a very negative light. But I think he's drawing attention, if you will, to the absolute core of the British monarchy, which is that it's hereditary. The Guardian says Harry's book discusses what it's like being a spare, someone born after the heir. And Dr McCreary says it's the exposure of that theme and how the monarch and heir are the most powerful that could be damaging. People in Australia, in Jamaica, in Canada, in New Zealand, all of which are Commonwealth realms, which have the British monarch as head of state, may well take from this episode doubts about not just the family, but more importantly, constitutionally, the institution itself. In the ITV interview airing this weekend, Harry appears to appeal for reconciliation with his family. I would like to get my father back. I would like to have my brother back. But it seems, as Dr McCreary says, that will be even harder after this book is released. Catherine Gregory reporting. We're a week and a half out from the start of the Australian Open tennis tournament and the excitement amongst fans is building. But how would the world react if a Russian player took home the cup at a time when Vladimir Putin's forces continue to relentlessly attack civilian targets in neighbouring Ukraine? Daniel Medvedev is one of the favourites to do just that. Although under Tennis Australia rules, he and other players from Russia and Belarus must compete as individuals without flags or country recognition. Well, that's not good enough, according to Ukraine's ambassador in Australia, Vasyl Mersnachenko. He wants Russians banned, as they were at Wimbledon, and he points to the scores of Ukrainian athletes who've already died since the start of the war. He joined me earlier. Of 183 uh, athletes that we know have already died uh, since the outbreak of the war. Uh, we also have some prominent tennis players uh, who are currently volunteers and actually in the Ukrainian military fighting the Russian invasion. Uh, one of them is Alex Dolhopolo. Another one is uh, Serhiy Stachowski. Uh, both of them have competed in the major international tournaments. And now, instead of doing what they have been doing, uh, promoting tennis as a game, they have picked up their, 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 their guns and they're now fighting. Um, and of course, when we see Russian athletes 
participate in international tournaments. We believe that Russians have no right to do that because their country, which they represent, uh, is waging a genocidal war in Ukraine. Russians and Belarusian players are being forced to compete as individuals without flags or any country recognition. Why is that not good enough? What I really want to see from those athletes, I want to see a statement that would say that they condemn the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that they condemn the Putin's regime. And uh, I I so far haven't seen that. But I, I hope at least one of those from Belarus or Russia will stand up and use the platform of Australian Open to make a statement. Russian Daniel Medvedev was asked if he supported the war. He declined to comment and referred to previous comments where he has said he is all for peace. Could that not be seen as a high-profile Russian subtly advocating for an end to the invasion? Look, if he really is against that, if he really condemns it, I, I don't really understand why he skipped and didn't answer the question. Because when you skip the question, it actually leaves lots of room for speculation. And to be frank, the message that it sends is that he's actually supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, because what else? Uh, um, you have to be articulate and just say, for, for Russian athletes, for any Russian athlete, uh, this is not that they you could be out there, you know, undecided or you can be out there non-political. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, everything is now political, including the sports. And we've seen how other countries are investing money into into showcasing their countries, like Beijing for the Beijing Olympics, like Qatar for the World Cup. Uh, and for Australia, by the way, it's also Australian Open is probably uh, the best brand, brand uh, which is known out there about Australia. Even before I came to Australia, I didn't know much about the country except for Australian Open. And then, of course, the kangaroos and koalas, right? But at the end of the day, um, uh, Australian Open is a big uh, brand um, uh, for Australia. And now having Russian a- uh, athletes here who actually even refuse to condemn the 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 the, uh, the war and they are still participating here. And uh, the fact that they are here already kind of, you know, they are allowed, they are welcome. You know, that's the whole point. And I think uh, they need to put pressure on, on their leadership. And they have a voice and they have a voice and they should use the voice because they have a huge following in Russia. And this is what people in Russia would listen to. They would listen to this athletes who they like, who they follow, like Medvedev, for instance. He's probably one of the best, uh, you know, athletes that Russia has these days. And he totally understands it, uh, but he's not doing it. Wimbledon did not allow players from Russia to compete in that tournament. The Australian Open is allowing it. Why do you think there's been a, a, a difference, a, a sort of softening of position in Australia? Well, you, you better ask Dennis Australia on this, um, and they will probably provide you comments for that. Uh, look, and to be, to be frank, I don't have anything personal against Dennis Australia. I really want to come and see some of the games, to be frank. They're also hosting a uh, fundraiser for Ukraine uh, on the 11th next week where they will be raising money for UNICEF and uh, interacting with with, with, with uh, Ukrainian community, I think it's great. I think that's the right thing to do. And uh, and I hope it's not only a one-off event and uh, Tennis Australia will continue doing that throughout the year. Mm. Many tennis courts were destroyed in Ukraine, blown up. And maybe Tennis Australia could also contribute money to rebuild to those tennis courts in Ukraine. But the inconsistency in, in the tennis world, if you like, from, from Wimbledon banning Russian players... Australia not doing so. What, what do you think of that? 
Look, but there is also US Open. I don't know how was it there. There's also the championship in um, in France. Uh, look, uh, it's um, there must be consistency, and that consistency has to be universal. That as long as Russia is waging this brutal war in Ukraine, Russian athletes should not be just under the neutral flag. They should not be allowed to participate, and this is pretty clear. That's Ukraine's ambassador in Australia, Vasil Mersnachenko. This is PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, river systems across flood-affected Australia to be monitored with so-called blackwater forecast. You're getting a whole box of tea bags built up and then when it comes into the water, you get excessive dissolved carbon coming into the system. The microbes that process all that go nuts and in doing so, they use the oxygen that otherwise would support fish. Residents of WA's flooded Kimberley were yesterday promised federal assistance, including evacuation aboard defence aircraft. But it hasn't happened as hoped for today because airstrips remain underwater. It's left hundreds of people in Fitzroy Crossing and remote communities stranded in evacuation centres, some with dwindling food supplies and flooded toilet systems. Jane Barden reports. Fitzroy Crossing resident and local councillor Jeff Davis was able to get into town from his home seven kilometres away by boat to attend a public meeting yesterday. He returned home, but last night the Fitzroy River inundated his house. The water came right up to the decking and then into the house. The middle part of our house started to subside because it's on a um, on a mound, but uh, luckily it hasn't sunk very far. But <clears throat> yeah, quite a quite a difficult time. We're now sitting waiting for a boat to pick us up, but unfortunately there's a whole bundle of people who've got a bit more emergency than us. He says hundreds of anxious people are staying in two evacuation centres in the town now, including some who've been choppered in from remote communities starting to go under. I would suggest there's mostly more than 100 dwellings that have been inundated. And the situation in the centres isn't good. Fitzroy doesn't have sewage capacity at the moment and that affects places like the evacuation centre. The toilets were all bubbling up um, yesterday. There was, you, know, you couldn't flush them. It's also compromised the uh, telephone lines to a certain degree. Food supply is another a big issue. The federal government promised yesterday that Defence Force planes would start evacuating the town, but the town's runway is flooded. So at the moment, the only transport is by helicopter or boat. I'd imagine if you tried to land a a Hercules or something on that airstrip now, it would it would compromise the airstrip forever. Does that mean really maybe one of the most useful things the Defence Force could do at the moment is to chopper you in food and medical supplies to there? Oh, again, yeah, look, I, I think so. But yeah, in my sort of humble opinion, I think that the scale of the disaster is most probably now just starting to be understood. And you know, the feeling yesterday up at that public meeting it was one of great anxiety and a bit of anger. What was the anchor about? Really about what they didn't know. You know, when they asked questions like, you know, when can I go back? You know, where am I going to get the food from? Another resident, Milton Lintern, is stranded in Fitzroy Crossing with family members and says they're running low on essentials. He's worried about other families stranded in some of the surrounding flooding remote communities. The IGA's got water inside. They've run out of meat run out of bread. A lot of people are trying to do shopping, but they can't even get into the IGA. 
I'm trying to get hold of my family out of Bailu, but no one, all their phones are off at the moment. Peter McCumsty is the deputy president of the Derbyshire Council. He says strong wind in Broome is delaying some missions to assist Fitzroy Crossing. In Broome, there are at least six or eight really big helicopters. The difficulty has been that those helicopters have not been able to take off as regularly or as quickly as they wanted to because they've had 90 kilometre an hour wind. He says while the Kimberley is used to wet season flooding, the scale this time has taken everyone by surprise. And once the recovery is underway, there are going to have to be some sober discussions with other levels of government about future proofing. We're desperately going to have to be very quick about assessing damage and what infrastructure we need to get up and running in the short term. But the real thing will most definitely be talking to state and federal governments about how we prepare better for these events as far as infrastructure. Because, you know, the volume of water flowing down the Fitzroy at the moment is enough to supply Perth with water for 20 years. Are you talking about really a lot of our roads, bridges, etc. is engineered for, you know, what used to be one in a hundred year floods, but now climatologists are telling us we're going to get more of these severe type events? I would certainly think that's the case. So we are going to have to have that addressed. Otherwise, you're just going to keep chucking good money after bad and not solving the problems. That's Peter McComsty, the Deputy President of the Derbyshire Council, talking to our reporter Jane Barden. South Australia is bracing for what could be a spate of fish deaths, and it may happen well after the flood peak has passed. Fishers in New South Wales and Victoria have already reported seeing dead fish due to a phenomenon known as blackwater, which causes a drop in oxygen in the river, leaving fish unable to breathe. As Angus Randall reports, conservationists are attempting to rescue some of the most at-risk fish, just in case. South Australian fisherman Asher Desiree is watching nervously as floodwaters sweep through the Murray River. Obviously we try really hard to to look after our protected species and you've got really old slow-growing fish like those big Murray cod. No one cares about those fish more than the fishermen. Uh, They've seen those fish for their entire fishing careers and they've grown up with those fish and some of those cod are upwards of 30 years old. So to see a, a really big dead cod is a real heartbreaking event. He's the executive officer for Recfish SA, the peak body for recreational fishing in the state. It can take years to recover from a fish kill event, and that has Asher Desiree worried. Those really large fish require high levels of oxygen to survive. So when you lose those big brood stock, you're losing all of that egg production and, and that breeding capacity with them. So that can really knock a fishery around and, and sort of turn it back several years. Fish deaths during flood events are often caused by black water. There have already been fish kills in other states. Giovanni Rogers is a biosecurity officer from South Australia's Department of Primary Industries and Regions. Blackwater events are a natural event and they can occur when there are high levels of organic material such as leaves, branches, grasses, cropping materials that are being washed off of riverbanks and floodplains into waterways during high flow or flood events. And it's the breakdown of these organic materials that can cause blackwater events. And particularly when combined with warm weather, which speeds up that breakdown process, that causes dissolved oxygen levels in the water to drop. Earlier this week, the state and federal governments dedicated $800,000 towards cleaning up possible fish kills in South Australia. Giovanni Rogers says there's nothing they can do to prevent blackwater events. All they can do is clear out the dead fish. 
Small-scale fish kill events occur from time to time depending on a range of environmental conditions and they'll normally just be washed away through the system or consumed by whatever's living in the river already. So it's just these unprecedented events that we don't normally see because of the high flows at the moment. It's difficult to know when a blackwater event may take place. It depends on how long it takes for water to recede off the floodplain, bringing with it leaves and branches that then break down. Craig Copeland is the director of fishing conservation charity Ozfish. Well, I've been involved in a number of blackwater fish kills and uh, sometimes they're very quick and sometimes they take a long time and then sometimes they don't occur. So (laughs) I wish I could be a bit more prescriptive. The fact that it's occurring in the middle of summer, which is, you know, the temperature is going to have an impact. We can only just cross our fingers at the moment. He's doing what he can to help the ecosystem by removing the most important breeding fish from the river and keeping them safe until the danger has passed. Mainly we're trying to look at fish that have still got a little bit of life left in them and also ones that are you know, mature. They're the ones we're trying to save. We're, we're putting them into facilities that we can look after them until such times as the water goes and then we'll put them back in the back in the river again. South Australia's flood peak is expected to reach Blanchetown in the next few days. Other towns downstream are still days away from their flood peak. Angus Randall reporting. Well, there's more to this story. Ian Ellis is a fisheries manager at the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. He joined me earlier. Ian Ellis, thanks for your time. We heard just there how some people are removing breeding fish from floodwaters to keep them safe. How effective is that? It can be quite useful if you can get to the fish while they've still got reasonable condition and you have somewhere to house them. Um, I think I think longer term nature is, is the best shepherd for these fish. So the ones that uh, manage to persist through these hypoxic blackwater events will naturally move to, to places where they can then breed when they recover. So um, it's a good tool to have in the tool belt. And uh, if it prevents the death of, of one fish or two fish or 10 fish, then that's great. Those fish can contribute later on. Unfortunately, there um, there'll be plenty of fish that still won't make it. But uh, I can assure you that on the on the other side of this flood event, there'll be some really good outcomes for native fish that do make it through. Yeah, we'll get to those good outcomes in a moment. I just want to sure. talk about these blackwater events. How much yep. more of a danger does a blackwater event pose to fish in a river system where humans intervene, like the Murray-Darling, for example, yep. compared to one that has natural flows? Yeah, so they are, they're exacerbated by us being here and the way we, we operate and, and manage flows through rivers. So, the, I mean, black water in itself is not a bad thing. It's, it's actually necessary. It's the, the black colour in the water is dissolved carbon coming from leaves and grass and crops and all the stuff that gets picked up in a flood. So it's dissolving like tea out of a tea bag. Uh, and that turns the water black. And that, that carbon that dissolves is actually the fuel for the engine that drives our river's ecosystems. So if you take it away completely, then you have a, a fairly sick river. And these days, well, when you get a large flood, like we're experiencing now, that, that inundates a bunch of country that hasn't been underwater for for years, decades in many areas, and you get a massive build-up of that, that sort of grass and leaves and so forth on the floodplain, which goes beyond what the river system used to do naturally. The river system used to flood every sort of one to four or five years, uh, at least at a moderate level flood, um, with these one in 10 or 20 year massive floods. But it means you get those periods where instead of, uh, instead of, I guess, a tea bag or two building up on the floodplain between flood events, you're getting a whole box of tea bags built up. And then when it comes into the water, you get excessive dissolved carbon coming into the system. The microbes that process all that and start the food web off 
go nuts to, pr- to process all that extra food for them. And in doing so, they rip oxygen. They use the oxygen that otherwise would support fish. So mm-hmm. that's that's what we call hypoxic blackwater. So blackwater is is natural. When it goes hypoxic, it, it is in some instances natural, but it's exacerbated by the way we manage the rivers and, and the land adjacent so, to rivers. So what then needs to happen to minimise the possibility of these major fish kill events? It's very complicated and it will take a long time, but it, it revolves around different land management practices, but also different flow management. So we need to try and restore what we sometimes refer to as the heartbeat. So you get a bit of an annual or every two years flood or pulse of water goes through a river and that provides the carbon that drives the cycle. It's like a heartbeat every year or two. We're not seeing that. Um, We need to try and restore that at least to some level through rivers like the Murray and the Murrumbidgee. Right. So let's get the good news. Uh, You said that this in the the sort of longer term will actually be really positive. Just expand on that for us. People know that flows or higher flows are good for rivers. We don't like the damage that these, these nasty ones do when these big floods come along after a long period of dryness. But they do provide plenty of food and a year or two worth of really, I give the wheel a good spin is like how to refer to it. And it, it means your fish get a chance to move around, get past some of the barriers like weirs that might be ordinarily in the way. We've seen fish in the last two or three years breed in mass numbers. So we've got golden perch, which are a favourite of many people that could callop in South Australia. They've been going nuts in the Darling and the Northern Basin for the last two or three years with all the high flows. And that's really necessary because these were fish that died on mass. People saw them in Menindee fish kills a few years back. There's a suite of fish species behind that doing the same thing. Little fish that most people don't care about, but they're food for bigger fish, they're food for birds. So we will see these booms in certain parts of the ecosystem. We're seeing pelican breeding events across the Murrumbidgee and the Lachlan. Um, We need these big events to give the, the wheel a big spin, as I say. Otherwise, if the wheel stops, we go three steps backwards. Ian Ellis, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. No worries. And Ian Ellis is a fisheries manager for the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can head to the PM webpage for all of our interviews and reports to share. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join us then. For now, though, good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.